0: Good afternoon, everybody. My name is Chris Gordon. I'm the Events Manager at Readings. It's such a pleasure to see each and every one of you here this afternoon. Uh, have a look around, though. Uh, look around. This is everyone here in this audience is perhaps here for a, a common reason, not perhaps just to hear two of the most extraordinary men, two of the men that have got uh, inc- wit, intelligence, uh, Oh, they are looking now, look at them. And of course, they're incredibly, incredibly good looking. We're so fortunate to have them here today. And we can thank the Melbourne University Press for that. So thank you so much. Louise is here somewhere in the audience. Thank you so much for letting us have this time today. Uh, There will be an opportunity at the end of this session to talk to Don and indeed to Martin, but perhaps at the end not to uh, ask questions. We're going to keep it rolling right through, but when we finish, when we say our thank yous, we can then come up and say hello and perhaps get your essay signed if you like. But I was saying before that we're all here for this common reason to hear these two men speak, but also perhaps because you too have suffered from feeling a little bit put off at times, perhaps a little bit of quiet unsettling in your stomach, perhaps some rage, some fury at different times. Is it true that all of us here can relate to that? I think that seems like a very fair note to start on. So without further ado, let me introduce you to Martin Flanagan, who of course is one of the great journalists, and an author. He writes particularly on sport and on indigenous rights. Uh, He writes many, many opinion pieces. And I know for a fact that today he has many, many opinions on this particular essay. Let's make him very welcome.
1: We're White right uh, mate the the essay the thing that gives it an added charm an added aura is that it seems to it's it's dealing with great moral principles but it's it's rooted there's an autobiographical hue to it so I just want to ask you a few questions relative to that um, your people were Scottish uh, most of them um, there was one there's one. Unfortunate
2: convict strain. <laughs> Second Fleet, Covent Garden, no good.
1: So what part of Scotland?
2: Uh, Lowlanders all. Bad-tempered Lowlanders.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and so when did they get to Australia?
2: Um, the most of the, all the Scots really arrived in the 1850s, 1840s and 50s.
1: And went to Gippsland?
2: No. One, some, most of them went to Gippsland, but one lot the most indignant lot went to Mount Gambier (laughs) (laughs) as factatums, you know, and then felt that they'd fallen from grace when the old old laird died and they had to go pioneering by themselves. And they carried with it and still do. There's one surviving remnant, sibling, um, who still has this notion. It seems to me that we were once in a more elevated state. (laughs) Um, why, I don't know, um, but um, that's what they believed. And so everything was an affront. You know, a cow shitting on them was an affront. Um, personally, they took it personally, everything. Wombats were an affront.
1: <laughs>
2: a flea was an affront. Everything was an affront. Um, and it was someone not talking to you in the local shop or seeming to slight you. Um, my father told this story about his father coming home and by the time he would got home on his horse, he was convinced that this woman had failed to acknowledge him in the shop in Thorpedale. <laughs> no, in Jindavik, in even town. And he said he could still see him galloping back. He didn't even, he sat down, put his hat on the icebox and then it was too much for him. He was back on his horse <laughs> and galloping into town to have it out with this woman. How dare she? And of course she said, how dare you?
1: And so on. And, you know. It boils away. So what religion were you brought up in? Presbyterian. And was the Bible, there's a very strong biblical element to this essay, were you brought up, was the Bible an influence on your early life, a strong influence?
2: It it reached us in a sort of, you know, a roundabout way. My father read the Bible, I don't know that he... But he wasn't a high, as literate a man as his grandfather. He was in, of that generation that missed out really. My grandfather you know, had a better education than my father did because of the depression and everything. Um, but it, but, but it, so it came in a sort of bowlerized way. But I read it. Uh, for the dirty <laughs> bits, I mean, mainly. That's what um, How you know, Mark Twain said, you know, that's what the Bible was really for, to entertain young boys. <laughs> um, um, and. So we got this, this, it was the sort of gospel of indignation that we, that we got, the Old Testament at least. And it's full of it, you know. It is full of people enraged wiping out whole races of people. Yeah. And, um, um, the, the thing about indignation is that it's not, it's not the same as rage or, or fury or any of that. I mean, and the best test of it is that, you know, there's no humor in anger or rage or fury. There's no, but indignation is funny. I mean, it's just, it just sits on that very, on on that sort of edge of of hilarity, you know, because people do look really silly when they're indignant, kicking things, you know, um, because indignation is, is really about a slight to the self, to one's self-esteem. Um, and uh, Charlie Chaplin is a perfect example. I mean, Chaplin didn't do rage, but he did indignation all the time, mm. and that's what made him so brilliant. Mm. Um, you can't be funny when you're just when you're anger is a really boring emotion. But indignation has a few levels to
1: it. Um, how old were you when you read the Bible?
2: Um, I probably started. You know, I had my I had a religious phase when I was about eleven. It lasted about nine months, <laughs> and then I. I think I, I think I gave up religion when I realised that what eternity would be like, <laughs> you know. It's, and the idea of spending it with a bunch of Puwong Presbyterians was not attractive,
1: <laughs>
2: you know, uh, sitting in the car waiting for the ladies' guild to finish, you know. And um, I thought, well, there's got to be something better. I haven't gone for the 69 virgins or whatever it is that other religions promise, but it, oh, no one can hear. Oh, do you want me to start again? <laughs> Um, no, I, 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 the religious phase really was over by the time I was twelve, and but the Bible, I went on reading the Bible for a lot longer, and still do sometimes.
1: And um, what do you make of if, if if you take an atheist position that the Old Testament God is really a human projection? Um, why why do you think we invented that particular persona, which you write about quite a bit at the start of the essay? How do you explain that persona? Oh, look, I'm, not a, I'm, I'm
2: very bad at psychology, but I suspect it's, um, it's got something to, to do with, um, with patriarchy. I mean, the other thing that we read, we only had about 17 books, I think. One of them was On Our Selection, and, and Dad Rudd in On Our Selection was... I mean, we knew people like Dad Rudd, um, and he was like one of the old... Testament patriarchs, he was like God, and you know he and he did stupid things. He was full of indignation, you know. And there was a wonderful picture in there by Fullwood, I think his name was. He mm. was a terrific illustrator, 1890s. And uh, you know he's sitting at the head, he's on his feet at the head of the table, and he's banishing Dan from, you no longer live under my roof, out of here. And uh, that was my image of God, really, because he was always doing the same thing. And when Cecil B. DeMille got hold of him, he did... See, we went to those, you know, The Greatest Story, all those biblical epics. We went along to the Curranbarra Theatre to watch and came home, you know, thoroughly cleansed. (laughs) Um, So he was the sort of caricature of a god in in my mind. And I think it was about the patriarch and the warrior. Um, So it, it was a very ugly thing, really, it makes you, it does make you a sort of, you know, boorish, that sort of thing. And the town was full of these people, the men. And I still remember, uh, you know, standing outside the church, where they would stand there, these these people with faces like parchment. They must have been, they looked like, you know, Methuselah. They were so old, they'd never known moisturizers, so they were sort of, the fa- faces were torn by the elements and um, I don't know what they were talking about but they would, would have been talking about the weather probably or the price of merino ewes those who had a few ewes milk prices and they ran everything they had the best farms and they ran the butter factory and um, it was a little feudal society run by Presbyterians basically. Anyone from Pewong? I hope not.
1: Um, and did th- there's this corroboration in your essay between um, your forebears who had this capacity for indignation and, and this Old Testament God, which had this capacity for indignation, and then for you when you got introduced to the New Testament, it was a source of some confusion to you.
2: Yeah, it's a different kind of piety, isn't it? So there was some, there is, I mean you can't, if you read the Bible, you know, you become terribly confused. I had my great aunt's Bible. I snared it. and it was, a, it was a sort of 18th century King James version, of course. And uh, she spent, as far as I knew, she spent her whole life in bed, just underlining little passages with a pencil. <laughs> so I went through it and, and looked at all the bits she'd underlined. I couldn't see any kind of pattern to these things. Um, but it was all about not doing things. And if you did, this would happen to you. Yeah. Um, and uh, as I recall, the New Testament was really untouched. And So the Beatitudes, which is you know in a way the best part, uh, just wasn't there. So it was a mixture of when I read it, the, you know, I, I, I suppose I you know I took in some of it, but it was always so maudlin, you know. There's this kind of I'm sympathetic to the version and I do. I, I think I think actually the Sermon on the Mount, as far as we it's never entirely recovered from Monty Python's version of it. (laughs) (laughs) I was, what did he say? You You know, that sort of thing. Um, But taken in the raw and and, in the language of it, it, you know, I think it's probably underpins the Labour Party and socialism in Australia more than any any other document. (laughs) Uh, 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 Joseph Furphy sort of basically says it in Such His Life. It's a, a magnificent passage which just goes on and on and on could have been edited a bit, but he's really saying, well, you know, that is the way, it's by these standards that we, we should imagine a democratic country. Um, but then, I've, I still then have trouble with the images of those, those men in the churchyard, and then with Scott Morrison and um, <laughs> all those sorts of people. I mean, but, you know, I, I love the music. You know, it gave us terrific music.
1: You know, art got something going for it. One of my favourite lines in your essay: "I had uncles in the mould of Abel, aunts in the mould of Cain." That's
0: that's
1: uh, that's a pretty subtle mm-hmm. idea. Yeah.
2: Well, they were always at each other's throats, you know. And I think, I mean, I think, I think somewhere there I say, well, you know, when you are reading the story of Cain and Abel, you you always feel that the one who got mugged brought it on himself to some extent, you know. Because one of the flip sides of this is, is, is martyrdom. You know, I came from a family of people who are always martyring themselves. <laughs> you know, they wouldn't speak for months, <laughs> you know. I had two uncles who, you know, they they
1: worked,
2: they, they, they shared a dairy farm, they went to the cow shed every night together and one of them would say after a while, he'd ring up, you know, they live 50 miles from us, and say, you know, he hasn't spoken to me for three months now. <laughs> he just... And he wouldn't. And he had no idea what was going on in their minds. Why they were... You know, what, what it was that had peeved him. And there were a lot of people like that. I've been fighting that sort of instinct off all my life, I think. Probably have
1: failed. I was going to ask you, are you an indignant man? Well, I try not to be, but it's, you
2: know, it's there. Um, some things get, you know, do get on your goat, or up your goat, as people say these days. Um, I, I don't know why, either. have you noticed how people say, I that gets up my goat? <laughs> um, but it gets on my goat, sometimes. But it's weird how that happens, you know, for instance, if you take someone like, I hesitate to mention his name, but if you take someone like Donald Trump, I don't feel indignant about Trump at all. The, the president, the politician who I feel most indignant about in, my, in the last 30 years is is George W. Bush. Yeah, that's
1: clear in your essay. Yeah. I mean, I think
2: because Bush offends something that... I mean, Trump it, it represents a kind of dark side of America that's always been there, and at least he is representative of this this... Yeah this thread in American history. Um, and he represents all the narcissists of the world. And, I mean, he's, he's highly representative when you think about it, of the stupid and the bigoted <laughs> and so on. You couldn't have a more representative president in some ways. <laughs> um, but Bush, it was, Bush was a sort of cipher for more powerful interests. Um, he was a, a pathetic frat boy who who put the world at enormous risk and and, and probably has done more to sort of make democracy fragile in Europe um, and elsewhere than any other president since the Second World War, or any political leader since the Second World War. And he was such a dope. I mean, you know, he sort of, he... Even the way that, with that down-home, you know, language and the swagger and all the rest, I mean, he, you know, he's a sort of privileged youth... He's had, had everything made for him. The fact that he wore, a, you know, he got up in military gear when real presidents, people of some sort of substance who'd been generals, didn't get up in military gear. All those things sort of make you indignant because they, they insult something which means something to you. Mm. You know? So he, he drives me mad. Mm. And I've, I dreamt about him <laughs> quite often. Um, He was in the back of the car. I had this weird dream. He was in the back of the car as I was driving through my old hometown. And he he took no notice. He wasn't interested. He was just slouching in the back. And you know how offensive it is when someone (laughs) is not at all interested in (laughs) what is interesting to you? You know, like he was just rude, ignorant, as people would say in those days. So, yeah, there are some things which make... Indignant, but it, it's not a terribly helpful emotion. And
1: it, it, as I said, you risk making a fool of yourself. Who'd be the Australian politician who would make you most indignant? John Howard. <laughs> uh, for being for being such a lackey
2: of Bush, um, and both of them are still walking around free. <laughs> and you're you know. Indignant about that? Yeah, I think uh, I think both of them are. Yeah, I mean, again, I mean, Abbott, you couldn't feel indignant about him, and the man was just weird. Yeah. Just a weird individual. Um, Still going on. I mean, uh, there he was the other day, going on. Alan Jones or Ray Hadley, one of those, saying there'll be no more of this stuff going on. This, this, this hacking at people. You know, this, 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 destroying them. He called it off. Publicly announced it. I'm not going to do that anymore. It's time it ended. Thanks very much. You know, you've been doing it for so long. but, I mean, he's, he, he's beyond the reach of indignation, I think. Um, whereas Howard, you know, uh, there's something about Howard that always got on my goat. But again, I mean, he, I mean, he is a sort of an insult to the sort of, I think, to the, the dignity of this country. And uh, the way he, he just went all the way with Bush. Um, without a hesitation, man of steel. (laughs) I mean, that insults people who are steely and have actually had to go through something. Yeah. You know?
1: Which neither he nor
2: I have ever had
1: to do. Yeah. Do you think um, we are becoming um, a more indignant society because of social media?
2: Probably. I mean, there is this other form of indignation, which is feigned indignation. And an awful lot of social media seems to me to be feigned, you know, and... um, Maybe, that might be the reason why I find it, you know, like a threat to life, to read, to get into social media, to read. Um, I'm not on Facebook or any of that stuff, and I... I try to avoid the comments at the end of every article because they're too depressing um, or too, you know, reassuring in a way, to make sense. I don't know whether we're more in, in indignant. I think we're in some ways less rational. Um, if we, I'll give you an example. I mean, the, the disjunction between, I, I, it, Three weeks ago, I was, in, I was in hospital for a few days, and, and it was while this business was going on in Canberra. So it was, there it was on the TV. It was like, you, you imagine, because they kept going up and down this glass corridor and the camera was outside, and it was as if they were sort of taking hostages and bringing them back. I've got Mitch Firefield for you, you know, I've got I've got and so And there was something terribly primitive about it. But all the time, it was these white blokes. And they, they grew whiter as the days went by. They just became whiter and whiter and sillier, and so more and more a caricature of themselves. While I was being attended, over the course of the three, four nights, I, I think I had eight different nurses. And one of them was white. The rest were all... Um, they, were, they were from Nigeria and from India and from Sri Lanka and from the Philippines and from Fiji and you know what. And so there was this world, and they were all women, bar one. So there was this world where things matter, where, you know, you're being looked after, life-saved care is being distributed and all the rest. The real, a real world. And there was the the world of power, which was complete opposite. Just white blokes having a, having a a kind of, some sort of strange game that they're playing. And you really thought, well, actually, the camera should turn around and stop watching them going up. Just ignore them for a while and they might get over it. (laughs) you know, cut off Sky News, the whole lot. Just let them try and work it out among themselves. Turn all the power off, the switch power, you know, turn all that off and and look into the hospitals or into aged care or any of these places and you'd have an entirely different view of the world. And you'd actually see what... I mean, one of the chief players, of course, is is Dutton, who nearly became Prime Minister. And I should congratulate everyone here. You are the bravest of the brave for coming out in Melbourne on an afternoon. the, 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 that man almost became prime minister out of a kind of strange, deracinated power game.
1: Yeah.
2: And the real, you know, the, I, I, it's you know, people talk about you know young people not being interested in politics. Well, you could, how could they be possibly be interested in this
1: nonsense? I'm so, I'm someone who actually believes in democracy because every other system seems to me to lead to secret police. And or torture cells, and it seems to me that democracy globally, and including in this country, is in retreat. Do you have a view on that? Yeah, and I still think it's sort of you know this one works somehow
2: works better than probably most others. You know, this is the other this is another form of indignation. There is there is sort of auto indignation. Like sometimes you can get really indignant with yourself because you're so damn lucky. You know, and how. You know what are you what are you doing with your life, watching football or something when you should be doing something useful given your luck. But I, I don't know. I, I, uh, it feels dangerous to me now, but I don't know whether that's just age. I think as you get older, you, do, you know, you have a sense of impending doom, not necessarily your own, but but the world feels more dangerous. But I don't think there's any doubt that it's sort of it's uh it's a bit of a um there is a sort of a new right sort of authoritarian movement and the and the left seems unable to come up with any sort of solution you know we now we now cling we can't cling to Bernie Sanders for too long because he's seventy six um but there is this guy called beto o 'Rourke in Texas, who is sort of hopeful.
1: Mm.
2: But there's not much else in the way of, of a... I mean, there are movements which are, are encouraging, but they're not actually the political solution. They're not actually going to solve the democratic problem. I mean, how our power works. Yeah. And if you don't get the politics right, you go backwards, which is a perfect example. You know, the, the Democrats in 2016 was a very good example. They got the politics wrong and the world got Donald Trump. Yeah. Um, and that's a catastrophe we, they got the politics wrong in um, in 2000 and you got George W Bush yeah. and so on it, it really is imp- important to get it right yeah. So, if I, if I felt indignant about 2016 it would be really with Hillary Clinton and the Democrats that yeah. I feel that was that was
1: unforgivable. You once said to me um, that the, problems with op- the problem with optimists is that they haven't got a sense of humour and that um, the great humorists are always pessimists.
2: Yeah, it's something like that. I, I, I've probably moved on a bit now and I don't believe in optimism or pessimism. Both of them seem fairly pointless, but um, there's a terrific book by Terry Eagleton on optimism and hope, which I think is, makes the point. We need hope, but optimism is You know, what is the good of being optimistic when you're about to be shot in the morning, you know, or just in in the next five minutes? It's a bit like living in the moment, if the moment's a good one. The rest of the time, we'd rather be out of the moment. Um... I don't... don't, But I I think... (laughs) You know, you can get really sick of people telling you to be positive. You know... I don't know what that... What are you meant to be, you know? I'll be positive if it's, if if I think it's worth being positive, you know. And optimism, I think optimism in a way obscures the need for hope and the need to do something, you know. I sort of believe that something will generally turn up, but I'd be stupid to believe that all the time yeah. because I might have to save myself, you know. It's to presume too much, I think, to be optimistic. And I think most of the great, you know, the great comic turns have been of a sort of dark kind. Um, You know, you may try and make a funny show about a vice president Um, who's optimistic. You know, make the show optimistic. I mean, the the show is funny, Veep is funny, because it's it's got such a dark view of politics. So, you know, you I can't think of any stuff that I laugh at that is optimistic except if it's laughing at optimism.
1: Who's your favourite comic writer? You're a funny man. Who's your favourite comic writer? Well, at the moment that bloke who writes, you know, who
2: wrote In the Thick of It and Veep and well, I can't remember his name. Is that Ianucci? Yeah. I think he's brilliant. I I don't actually watch a lot of comedy, really. Read? Read? Yeah, I read funny stuff occasionally. I'd rather read bleak stuff. (laughs) Um, But I don't. I don't watch much comedy anymore. Um, I I like. I like. uh, It's good on long flights. I don't take many of them anymore. (laughs) But you could. um, You know, I think uh, I wouldn't watch Larry David um, except on an aeroplane. He's perfect on an aeroplane. You just watch him over and over again. Um, or the, there are probably dozens of shows I don't ever see. And some of them, you know, you were watching and were really enjoying, and they turned out to be, you know, moral reprobates, and you're not, you can't watch them anymore. <laughs> What's his name? Louis C.K. I
1: really liked him. <laughs> He's off. <laughs> you say in the book that, you're, or you, you imply at the end of your book that indignation the other side of the the shadow side is melancholy yeah is that is that the your view yeah i think it is um i can't remember why i said it though <laughs>
2: um yeah i think i think it's i mean me, me, i was really surprised to see um paul Keating saying saying on those interviews he did with Kerry O'Brien that he was... You've got to have a bit of melancholy, Kerry, he said. <laughs> You've got to have a bit of melancholy. He was furious with me because I said he was a melancholic in that book. <laughs> <laughs> but he's taken it on a bit. <laughs> uh, he said... I didn't listen to Mahler all the time, he listened to Mahler. And anyone who tells me Mahler's not melancholic, I mean... It's, it's, um, it's like poison, Mahler. And melancholy is a bit like poison, but it's... I don't know how anyone cannot be melancholic. I mean, uh, to say at the beginning of this, I mean, re- the reason, if you want to... I mean, we, we should all be indignant. The fact is, you know, we're given this wonderful thing, life, and then it's taken away from us. What could be nastier than that? Um, we're given a sort of... You know, we're given an id, and we're given an ego, and we're given all these sort of things which make us feel great and powerful, and then we're reduced to ants or less than ants. Um, so there, there are profound grounds for melancholy and indignation. You know, we all know the end is
1: <coughs> nigh Now, you chose this topic. Yeah, I think so. And, and so you were asked to write essay and you chose mm. indignation. Mm. What, why, why did you choose indignation? I mean, there'd be many things you could have written on. I don't know about that, but I, Uh, because I think it's,
2: um, it was, uh, it it was always such a part of um, my uh, family life. Um, You know, people were always storming off. No one knew quite why. (laughs) Um, In what we call Scots. She's in a Scot. Um um and there were you know it, it was it was a it was a sort of you know it was poison in the in the family soul really and uh, and I thought well no, no one sort of written about it that I could remember and then Philip Roth published a book called Indignation before this came out i think um so it's a i think it's a sort of you know it, it, it's an it is the the profound human instinct because it it is, we are indignant when our self-esteem is assaulted in some way. Mm-hmm. And it's terribly subtle. You know, you, w- there would be no one in this room who honestly could say that they haven't felt slighted at some point and had to keep it under wraps, not show it, but deep down they felt slighted. Mm-hmm. instead said a little thing that no one else would notice. Mm-hmm. And it... Probably at least half those people are still carrying that wound now even though it might have been delivered, you know, 40 years ago. Mm. Something someone once said, a teacher or someone who probably said it quite innocently, but, but we do carry these little wounds around.
1: One of the things I learned from your book that I didn't know was where the term righteous indignation comes from or that idea. What did it say? <laughs> <laughs> the Puritans.
2: Ah, yes, yes. Well, yeah. Well, that that's, that's right. Well, they, the Puritans, in a way, spoke for God's indignation and, and lived in perpetual fear of it, which was the you know the the driving force of their totalitarian state, in a way. That mm. that an offence against God or a presumption on His will. Uh, was an offence against everybody because it may lead to his wrath because God didn't sort of specify who he would strike. Um, you know, the idea of the lightning strike never really occurred to him. <laughs> like the big, the mass extinction, you know? um, So everyone was in danger. Um, but, but what they did was sort of, they, they ended up imitating the, the patriarchs of these places, imitating the righteous indignation of the Lord, you know. Um, which is how you end up with Dad Rudd figures and all sorts of other, mm. you know, righteously indignant patriarchs. And I mean, the, the, the other thing, when you think about it, is that if, 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 you want to, if you want to explain the success of Adolf Hitler, it's indignation. I mean, he, he, he generated and, and lived off a kind of feigned national indignation against everything that had been done to the German. And for that, you had to create a being, a German, an Aryan who was superior to all others, who had, a bit like my family, fallen from grace or been rudely subjected um, to corruption and infamy. So it it really was the the whole... The thrust of all Nazi propaganda was um, of an indignant kind. Mm. How dare they? You know, we must re-establish so You you assert um, your self-esteem in, in in the most bizarre and horrific ways. Mm. So it's, it is a, it's, just, it's a powerful force. So if you ask why why I took it on, because the, you know the more I thought about it, the more I thought it's actually uh, it
1: is a, a a terribly powerful emotion that people have sort of forgotten. Mm-hmm. Given the religious basis of your essay, have you ever discussed this essay, what you've written, with someone who actually believes in the Bible?
2: My sister's complained about her being in it. (laughs) (laughs) she sort of believes. I don't know how you sort of support Peter Dutton, and I don't know. no, but I'd, I'd, I have no wish to. I, I watched a. Um, if you want to get really indignant, if you want to know what, that we, if you if you want to have a sense that we have come a little way, if you, you there is a, there's a tape that's on the internet, and it's John Cleese and Michael Palin talking to Malcolm Muggeridge yeah. and the Bishop of South London. Yeah, have you seen it. Yeah. It drove me mad for a, two weeks after I'd seen that. Yeah. But I, but I had, had a sense: well, we weren't entirely wrong. We lefties of that, t- that yeah. time—they yeah. are insufferable, Muggeridge and this bishop. You know, the vanity and the, the condescension. Wow. And the end, At the end, Palin, who is you know, probably the nicest bloke on earth, is sitting there and his teeth. You know, he's he's rectus. He's <laughs> just hanging on. <laughs> <laughs> he has suffered the most terrible sort of. Um, condescension from these people. Mm. I mean, these humbugs.
1: Mm.
2: And so, I mean, they're not, not all the clergy are, are like that and not all, you know, the world's not, there aren't that many mug in the world. <coughs> but, um, no, I think, you know, they, they can come to me. Um, I don't really and besides, I'm not I'm not an evangelical atheist either. By the way, I mean I have I have no I see no point to militant atheism at all. Um, I don't know how you can be given the reputation of um, the history of atheist regimes in the 20th century. They haven't done real good, mm. and the music's nowhere near as good. <laughs> um, you know, Shostakovich and a few others apart. Um, so I I, I the only, the only time I get angry with re, re, religious people is when they seem to um, think it's somehow bad not to, be, not to have a belief like they have, whereas I think they should feel sorry. you know. Like, it must be wonderful to believe. But if you don't, you have this burden of disbelief. Yeah. Um, but not many of those people are around anymore.
1: Do you have any view on, we've got th- the three Semitic religions, which all come out of the one source. Um, Judaism, Islam, Christianity—why, why have they proved so phenomenally powerful globally? How is the, the idea of the Semitic—why is the idea of the Semitic God proved so, 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 so culturally potent in so many cultures? I'd throw that one open to the audience. I don't know the answer to that. It's too no. big a question for me. Um,
2: Maybe because it um, it's a sort of representation of the patriarchy that and the gerontocracy, which, which more primitive societies are. Um, it's like somehow abstracting um, um, a sort of ideal anthropology, if you like, into a into the an all-powerful um, deity. But the, they, I guess they. have uh, I don't know enough about. Um, I know a little bit about Christian history, but I, uh, not much about the others. But um, they were very cunning, the Roman Catholic Church, how they, they how they worked a woman into it uh, effectively. Um, I am fascinated by it. I mean, I do read. These, you know, histories of Christianity and the Hundred Years' War and 30 years, all this stuff. But I, um, I never come up with a solution. I go back and read Mark Twain and that is enough.
1: Well, that's why when I asked you about your famous favourite comic writer, he'd have to be one of them.
2: Yeah, I I was thinking of um, television shows when you asked me that for some reason. But, um, yeah, I love Mark Twain. I still, I still uh, think Steele Rudd is vastly underrated because I think he was sort of psychologically very acute um, among Australians. Um, David Sedaris makes me laugh, although I haven't read him for a while. Um,
1: I can't think of any
2: comic writers just at the moment.
1: If you, were, um, if you were to write another essay tomorrow, what would, you, what would your topic be? Have you got any ideas? Um,
2: no. <laughs> <laughs> Are you working on something now? Yeah, I'm trying to work on something. I, um, I'm trying to work on a book about a, an anthropologist friend of mine who was a Vietnam vet um, who I met in 1968 when he just got back from Vietnam. And um, we've stayed friends ever since. Um, And he became an anthropologist. Went to a community in Arnhem Land and has studied it for, what is it now, 45 years at least. Um, Also became its chief benefactor, basically keeps the whole homeland alive. But at the same time, he he was diagnosed with PTSD like the rest of his platoon. So it's interesting to me, I don't know quite how it'll hang together. I've been thinking about it for 10 years and went up there a lot. Um, I don't know whether it will hang together. You never do, do you? But it's... um, I I guess the the personal element is that my number didn't get pulled out, so I didn't get called up. Um, He's interesting because he was against the war. and at first refused to go, didn't put his hand up when they asked. Um, spent two weeks in an in a lab, army laboratory and then realised that he couldn't not go because he felt that if he didn't go and if these people he trained with for 18 months were killed, what would he ever, how would he live with himself? And, which was mature thinking for a 20-year-old and so he went. And saw some horrible stuff and got back in November, December of sixty seven. Um, so he missed the Tet Offensive where two of his platoon were killed. Saw the saw the announcement of their deaths in the age in a column inch, he said, so um, so he was full of rage. Yeah. The anger was terrific. But he marched against the war, I mean, almost immediately. He was sort of marching up and down with the, he didn't like Viet Cong flags and, and LF flags, but he's an interesting case. Um, his best friend was demonstrating against the war on the Geelong railway station as he got in the train to go to Pakapanyal and train. So, um,
1: it's, a good, it's a good tale. You've had, you've had a long and very successful career as a rider. Huh? What do you look back on with particular pride of what you've done? Oh, God.
2: I don't know. You know, I, I suppose sometimes you... I wasn't expecting this question, Martin. Um, <laughs> I don't know. The... the um, I suppose, in a way, the fact that it's all been... It, it was so varied, um, you know, from writing sort of academic history to... The eighties, writing stuff for Max Gillies, writing Australia's, co-writing Australia's greatest theatrical disaster. <laughs> um, um, and the, you know, some of the stuff for Keating was um, useful, I think. Um, I don't know. It's hard to say, all, all you think, I don't know whether you're the, you probably feel the same way, all you think is what you haven't done. Yeah. You know? And, <coughs> uh, the, the worst feeling I think for, for I've, I've discovered in the last few weeks is the worst feeling, I've suddenly identified it. If, if you, I, I guess in any job, is when you can't get your teeth into something, that's the, I find that really difficult. For, for one reason or another, you know, you, you haven't got a project that you can actually get hold of. Mm. Either because you're too stupid, or the project is the wrong one, or, mm. or you're just not doing it properly.
1: Um, not up to it, you think. Lucian Freud, the English painter, he was asked, what's hope? And he said, the next picture.
2: Yeah, well, I think that's probably, that's pretty good.
1: Although no. I often
2: think painters have got it easy, you know. <laughs> I had an a, afternoon
1: with Dane Swan once, who I'm related to, and uh, I asked him which was his best tattoo, and he said the next one. But I, <laughs> I told him about he Lucy. He has that in common with Lucid Lucian Freud. Freud yeah. yeah. <laughs> anyway, I think that's pretty much our time. Now, did you say when we are having questions? or? I
0: think we're not. We're not, uh, Well, it's up, to, it's up to you, but we thought maybe perhaps not if we'd come and say hello. Yeah, no worries. No, okay. I
1: don't mind if they want questions. Yeah. Sure. Do you want to? Are you OK. I'm okay either way. Yeah. Don's okay with questions, yeah. yeah. Apart from the shadow of and Collier, <coughs> what
2: would you say was the opposite of indignity? And do you think there's enough uniformity in dignity for there to be a collective noun of a group of indignants? When you were halfway through that, I was thinking we shouldn't have had questions, but but um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but I th- I think um, yeah, I, th- I think that's a great idea. Yes, a a group of indignants, yeah, there is a, I mean, the word is about dignity, isn't it, really, it's it's got it and the eye, um, and that's what makes it different to the more general conditions of rage and anger and all the rest, but we do, we have, you know, we have people who we describe as melancholics, so indignance is, is good, And, and some people are forever indignant. In my experience, and it can be very useful. I mean, you know, it can be a revolutionary condition. I think Che Guevara says, you know, you know, if you are, if these things make you indignant, then you know, join the revolution. Mm -hmm. Um, Nothing much happened to that. I mean, the American Revolution is are a bunch of indignant people. Um, And you know, it's not all. it, It has. Th what's interesting about it is that it has all these dimensions. Um all these possibilities, you know, comic and ironic and um much else. It's a good subject. Should be twice as long. <laughs> don't, don't we have sections of the media that feed it like the Herald Sun the current affair that's their bread and butter and that's what gets them bible since they're feeding indignation? The sure. Absolutely, and and we have we have a president of the United States who got there, feeding on the indignation of um, a large hunk of the American population. He didn't have to do it all because you know the the the, the assumptions of the Democratic campaign were feeding the indignation as well. Um, so, you know, as if race and gender aside, there was no other, no reason why people should feel that they were you know, not getting a fair deal or had had their self-esteem taken away as if you know, having a job or these things didn't matter as much. Um, Or having a sense of community or something that connected them. But it's true, that's, that's bread and butter for um, gallery journalism and certainly for, um, you know, the shock jocks. Well, yeah, it's mild in Melbourne. I mean, it's, it's, it's still genuinely alarming when you listen to Jones and Hadley and the, all those, you know, there Sean Hannity on these people. I, me- I remember the first time I heard, what's his name? He's vanished a bit. Hannity's sort of taken over from him. And the other one. No, no, I'm thinking of an American one, but I remember driving in the States and, hear, and hearing this character th- thinking I'd switched on to a complete lunatic, a mad station, you know, something, a parody of something, but it was real. And um, Why can't I think of him? Rush Limbaugh, Rush Limbaugh that's the man, thank you. Yeah. But that is, I mean, you and, and it makes millions, you know. People, you know... It's really easy to forget that the reason that Hannity is Hannity and Limbo is Limbo and Jones is Jones and so on is that um, there's so much money in it. It's advertising revenue. It's huge. Indignation pays.
1: (laughs) Okay. Well, thank... Oh, hang on. There's a gentleman right up the back.
2: Indignation of the Redbird speech. Um, Is that a statement? (laughs) Um, It's a, um, yeah, I guess that was, that was, I don't know whether it was a a speech of indignation or or of pacification. I'm I'm not sure. It was, I think Redfern was a, was a speech of recognition, actually, above all, Um, yeah? Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> well, if you're asking who wrote it, <laughs> well, it's Paul's speech, or as um, you know, there's a there's a story of um, Ted Sorensen who wrote Kennedy's inaugural. You know, the one in which he says, "Ask not what your country can do for you." I never thought it was such a great line. Actually, um, what you can do for your country, and. When Sorensen was asked who wrote the speech, he said, ask not. <laughs> <laughs> Which is a, a good reply. Um, so that'll do for me, <laughs> ask not. I don't know why, I mean, it's ridiculous, you know. But anyway, that's the way it's turned out. Um, the much more important thing than the... Ret- I mean, why would anyone need help to write that speech? It's a sort of history 1A basically. Uh, You know, it was a recitation of known facts,
1: Um, anyway. All right. Well, maybe a round of applause for the man.
0: Everyone, a round of applause for the extraordinary Martin Flanagan. Thank you so much. To each of you, thank you so much for coming out here today. On behalf of Readings, on behalf of MUP, it's been a pleasure to spend Sunday afternoon with you. I look forward to the very next time. Uh, If you'd like to come up and say hello, of course, to Don and Martin, please feel free. And uh, see you next time. Travel home safely. Goodbye.